All right, we're live. Uh, welcome back to another episode of the Public Speakers Podcast. Uh, this is Neil Gordon that I have on with me. Neil, you're actually the second guest on this podcast. So we have a ton of episodes of just me rambling into the microphone, but now you're the second person we're actually talking to. Um, so definitely excited. Well, I'm certainly happy to be your second guest to meet. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So uh, I connected with Neil on LinkedIn, um, like most people are doing nowadays, put out a piece of content on public speaking. I thought it was really interesting, informative, uh, hit him up to be on the guest on the show, and then he accepted to be on the show. So Neil is a public speaking trainer, uh, a coach, a consultant, whatever you want to call it, but he specializes a lot in the art of communication and public speaking. So today we're going to dive into his background, his story, what he thinks about public speaking from a philosophical perspective, from a technical perspective, and dive deep into those questions. So Neil, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from? I really don't even know uh, what state you're in right now, <laughs> what, what country, uh, and sort of how you got into the speaking industry. I am speaking to you today, Amit, from sunny Santa Monica, California in wow. L.A. That's nice. And, yeah, well, I discovered a handful of years ago that winter is optional, and I decided to exercise that option. Anyway, I grew up in New York, and just north of the city, actually. And basically, I grew up hating reading. I hated reading I from around the time I was in second grade when I got my first book report and all of a sudden reading became work. And I hated reading. I read one book for leisure between the ages of eight and 20. And that was just because a girl I hadn't had a crush on in senior year of high school was incredulous over the fact that I'd never read Catcher in the Rye. So I read that. <laughs> well, that was it. And, and spoiler alert, she didn't actually go out with me because I read the book. So apparently that's not the way into a woman's heart. Anyway, right. <laughs> so, so I went through high school and college avoiding reading at all costs. My, I had a 99 percentile reading comprehension when I was in first grade. But by the time I took my SATs in high school for the first time, I got a 330 verbal score, which put me in the fifth percentile. So I just my my reading ability just tanked. Right. And. What happened was I discovered reading a little bit in college, just reading a couple of light science fiction books a friend gave to me. But then really things changed when I moved to New York City after college and I was trying to escape the subway. Uh -huh. And I read this one novel called A Prayer for Owen Meaning by John Irving. And it was just, just because of the way things work out for that particular main character in that book, I had a whole worldview shift and I went kind of to this agnostic, atheistic kind of angst-ridden 20-something phase. And I went through, yeah, I went through this whole worldview shift. And because the, re the written word had so profoundly impacted me, I just dived in and just went for as many, I read as many books by that same author. And I wrote a whole bunch of other things all the while I'm analyzing how could the written word have done what it had done to me. And on the other side of that, I got enough marketable skills that I got a job at Penguin, the book publishing company, as an editor. You got a job at a book publishing company for someone who hated to read when they grew up. That's, That's it's right. amazing how life works out. <laughs> it, look, here's the thing, Amit. Life is never boring when you really take whatever it throws at you and you try to do something with it. Yeah, it That's just true. So if you try to find a way to make something work, even though it just seems like you've just been dealt this terrible hand, then then you're you're in for an interesting life. Now, were you religious before you read this book and that's why the mind shift, uh, mindset shift was altering? What an interesting question. I 
would say that, well, I was raised Jewish. Interesting. Okay. And I had this sense that life was always going to work out in some way. I had kind of moved away from Judaism by the time I was in college, but I would say that I just basically forsook all of that and I just really stopped believing in anything. And I've softened a bit on that as I've gotten older, by the way. But but you grew up with organized religion and like practices mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I was bar mitzvahed and I would fast on Yom Kippur and and all of these things that were actually rather, rather devotional in nature. I, mean, I, was in, I wasn't even just in like a, like a reformed Jewish home. I was in a conservative Jewish home where we observed a lot of the practices and stuff and services were conducted mostly in Hebrew and all of that. So, so yeah, this was a big deal just to suddenly go from that world into I'm in this all by myself and my only life is going to be one I create for myself, that there's no divine intervention here. Uh, which is ironic because there was a lot of divinity in that particular novel. What were you going to say? It's phenomenal you say that because, I I mean, I'm 22 as well, and I started being conscious of my own mortality and the fact that this existence may potentially be, not objectively, but potentially might be the only real existence, there is no afterlife, at a very Mm -hmm. young age, like 13, 14, and that's when I started rejecting religion. Yeah, it was really weird. And as I became got into college, I sort of definitively have said, it's okay for me to feel like that. Cause a lot of times I felt so sad and like, felt like I was yeah. a bad person, but a yeah. lot of times it's also like, it's okay to be, to, to potentially think that there's nothing else after this, which also potentially motivates this to be a fucking amazing time. Right. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, you're here, you're doing podcasts, you're out there trying to make things happen at 22, which is well, well before I ever came close to anything like that myself. Yeah. And I honestly feel that that, questioning that you went through in your early teen years was a really good indication that you were set up for something different. Like you were already questioning things. So by the time you got to be this age, you're already out and creating your own reality instead of just letting the world come to you. So that's a big deal. I I really celebrate you having gotten this far. I didn't even know you were that young. (laughs) Yeah, it was, I've always thought about it at a young age, why I had those thoughts, but I guess it was kind of just in me. Um, so after college now, how do we trans, so we got a job at the Bush book publishing company. How does that lead you, uh, into the speaking world? For a long time, I was a book collaborator. Primarily I would ghostwrite books. I would edit books at Penguin. I worked on both fiction and nonfiction, but as I got older and more immersed in communication as a whole, I found myself doing much more nonfiction, a lot of how to books, things like that. And even some journalistic books and higher concept books and all of that, but it tended to be nonfiction. And as I was going through a slightly later, I, I was already in my 30s by this point and had been working for myself for a number of years because I left Penguin around the age of about 30. And so in my early to mid 30s, I was working out some key concepts that were very much relevant to the creation of a nonfiction book. But for people to work with me, it was going to be a really high point of entry. It was a really significant investment to get a full-fledged book collaborator. If someone wants someone to help them to write a book, to ghostwrite, or to somehow coach them to the writing, if you're paying only a few thousand dollars or something for that kind of service, then you're probably getting poor service. Right. The most accomplished and 
capable book collaborators will typically charge tens of thousands of dollars at least, if not more. And so I wanted to start to help people in a way that didn't require such a high point of entry. I wanted to find a way to get the same basic principles across, which we haven't talked about yet, but the, the concepts were going to be relevant in theory. This is purely theoretical in theory, as much for public speakers as it was for book authors, ah, non okay. book authors, but I, it was, it wasn't proven. So I started to help a couple of my existing clients with their speaking. Like they would come to me for a book project and they say, well, I'm giving this keynote at my company's national conference next month. And so we tested it out and saw would ask, would this process that I've been doing with you work for the stage as well? And when, and when they asked you to consult with them, they were coming to you not as a speaking coach, but as a, a writing coach. They just thought, hey, maybe Neil can also help me with speaking because the right. principles of right. communication were the same. The principles were the same. This is all the creation of content it falls under that larger purview is that you have content as the main umbrella and then you come down to books and speeches and articles and appearances on podcasts and whatever it is. It all ends up being one larger goal of setting up content and then trickling down into the different buckets. So this is just a different bucket that we figured out could potentially be just as powerful and relevant in this other expression. Now, Even though I'm assuming computer. when you started to coach them, you got some some good results back from that. Well, it's funny you should say that. I mean, <laughs> the, the, my one of my favorite stories about a public speaking success story is one of the very earliest ones when I was working with one of my clients. She and I had worked together on her messaging, and we hadn't yet done anything with speaking. And I happened to be volunteering for the program. She became my client because I was a volunteer at the program at the children's hospital where she worked. And it was part of the program she had founded. And because she had founded this program, the hospital would have her talk to groups, groups of employees of, of sponsoring companies and things like that, like 30 people in a room. And this is my program kind of thing. And usually people would be glazed over and bored out of their minds and just politely clap at the end. They check their phones. They do all the things that a speaker would hate to have happen. Yep. And so I was showing, I showed up for my shift one morning, just doing business as usual. And she's all flustered and agitated. And I asked her what's wrong. And she told me that she had to go speak for 10 minutes in front of one of these groups of people that day. So I said, well, would you like a little help? And she said, sure. And so I took her aside and we worked out what she was going to say. And she went off, she gave the talk. I saw her later that afternoon. And I asked her how it went. And she said she had them held rapid attention from the moment she started speaking. Wow. You could hear the pin drop. And instead of just being glazed over and just politely clapping at the end, they lined up with their business cards and one of them even invited her to apply for a grant. Goodness. And the whole conversation lasted two minutes that day. I, I helped her to completely transform her presence as a speaker in two minutes. So let's get so into what did you say in those two minutes? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let's get the audience some free knowledge of what you said to transform this lady's life. Okay. So the primary reason why these results don't happen for most speakers is that they all believe the same myth 
about the content we create for our speeches. There's one fundamental falsehood that everyone has bought into, and I've had to cure pretty much every single client I've ever worked with of that as well. Anyone that I've helped, they all believe the exact same myth. And the myth is that audiences come to a speech for information. They do not come to a speech for information. How many people woke up in the morning and said, boy, I really wish I get some information today. No, no one said that. They think about what they have to do that day or the fact that their boss is giving them a hard time or that their child is having a hard time at school or that they had a fight with their spouse the night before. They're thinking about the problems that fill up their day-to-day life. They are thinking about their stuff, right? Right. Absolutely. And so when people come to a speech, we're dealing with the world of nonfiction. We're dealing with motivation and inspiration and all the things and all of that that happens at a conference or at a lunch and learn or whatever it is. People do not come for information. They come for change. They come to solve the very problems that were running through their head as they woke up that morning. Okay. And so what I did with her, and I mean, there are specific principles and techniques and all that, and we can talk about all of that. But basically what I did in that two minutes is I helped her to restructure her talk in a way that convinced her audience that with this program's help, change was actually possible. People came up to her with business cards and invited her to apply for the grant because they were empowered in a way they hadn't been before she spoke. Right. And people are empowered not by information, not by knowledge, not by that which they know is true, but rather that which they believe is possible. So in most public speaking textbooks that I've seen, they say there's sort of two types of speech, persuasive speeches and informative speeches. For mm-hmm. you, you're not saying informative speeches don't exist. You're just saying they're not as impactful as a persuasive speech. And a persuasive speech isn't necessarily trying to persuade you to believe in necessarily your agenda, but there is an mm-hmm. element of some convincing that needs to be done to get you from point A to point B. Because if you don't do that, then it's just information, then it's up to the audience. Right. I would actually say, I mean, that while on some level we could describe speeches as either persuasive or informative, Uh we are now at a point in the information age where we are inundated with information and just providing information is not enough to empower somebody. Even if that would prime, even if you're giving, let's say instead of a 45 minute keynote, let's say you're giving a 90 minute workshop, which in theory is an, we could call that an informative speech, right? Right. Even though it's meant to provide information that could then be implemented in some way, there is still a fundamental act of persuasion that is necessary to get them to not only, what's that? Especially to impact an audience. To impact them, right. Because you could provide all the information you want, but if they don't make that information actionable at the end, then it doesn't have any intrinsic value. And so it's not enough to just inform it's actually necessary, even in something we would describe as informative, it's still necessary to persuade them to give that information a go, to take it out for a spin, to do something with it. Right. So her, her speech was 
it could be informative and it could be persuasive. I honestly feel I've looked at texts like what you described, and I've actually disagreed with distinguishing one from the other and that you should write a different kind of speech. What I do teach my clients, if they're going to give a workshop, I might suggest that they spend the first 15 minutes of the workshop providing certain kind of content that might resemble a TED talk or something like that. And right. we, we can speak to what makes a TED talk what it is, but they might spend the early part of it providing that kind of persuasive aspect and then provide the rest of the content as more instructional in nature. Right. Cause you have to hook the audience in the beginning. Right. Right. Exactly. So I would even invite you to do away with the distinction between whether it's persuasive or informative, say that persuasion is the larger umbrella and that you might be instructing them with your content. You might right. be motivating them. You might be selling them or prompting them in some way to donate or to do something like that. Or you might just be provoking them into a new way of thinking, which is what a TED talk might be. Right. But they're all variations on persuasion because even with instruction, you're still persuading them to to do what you want them to do and to integrate it and to implement it outside of the content itself. I agree. I, I think the reason most textbooks make that distinction is because they're trying to teach it at a very basic level. Uh, mm -hmm. They're trying to distinctify these types of speeches, but I've, I, I come to agree with you. Like it, you have to have information that has a purpose. Otherwise yeah. it's just a lecture at that point. And, and you know, public speeches are right. technically lectures, but lectures are also boring. <laughs> so, right. If you, if you've gone up there, if you're a professor and you've lectured for 50 minutes that day and you've provided a bunch of information and they've written it all down in theory, you've done your job, right? but I went through an entire four year education that was probably about 80% that. And I don't remember or I didn't implement or integrate almost anything from those years. Yeah. And if I haven't implemented or integrated or done anything, if it hasn't enriched my life in some way, then why does it have value? Absolutely. Information without a purpose is just facts. And that doesn't really help us to make this world a better place. I agree. 100%. I'm in the current process of that right now, given I'm in college and I have to deal with these PowerPoints. <laughs> um, so that that lady, that worked out. It took two minutes and that was successful. How does that start uh, forming multiple more clients for you to get into this thing? Sure. And so if, if it seems appropriate, would it be a good idea then for me just to break down a couple of the key principles that lead to those clients? Like what it was that... Yeah, like we 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 did a very specific thing in those two minutes. And oh well, not not even that. I, I wasn't even asking. I was asking. So that was one client that approached you. How oh, did sure. the word get out so you could start getting multiple other people? Oh, I see what you're saying. A lot of it came down to me realizing that in the world of client attraction, there was an incredibly powerful call to action in the world of digital marketing, like Facebook ads and things like that. Right. Where people have a speech coming up because they're going to be at a conference or something else, or they really want to get out and speak more. And they know that being an effective speaker is really good for their marketing. Right. But they don't really feel like they're getting the traction they want and they're not getting the gigs and they've been speaking for free for a long time or whatever it is. And what I realized was that that 
top of mind problem of I have a speech coming up leads to a sense of dread that can actually really very much compel people to want to learn more. Got it. Got it. It's like, as we know, people are often very afraid of public speaking. Yep. I'm sure we all know the very famous and arguably overused statistic about how people are more afraid of speaking than dying. It's actually, I want to pause you right there. I'm sorry to interrupt. Sure. I have the study. <laughs> so the study you're referencing, I just want to let everyone know this because no one knows the counter study. The study you're referencing was in 1973. It was done in Jersey. They pulled yeah. a bunch of college kids uh, and they asked public speaking, what are your top fears, right? So a bunch of people selected public speaking and death. But the question they didn't ask, which is the Davidson study in 2012, 40 years later, figures out, they never asked which one comes above the other. So yeah. people have been selling it as public speaking over death, but it's just public speaking and death. This study found out more people would say death over public speaking, which makes sense because like it's death. Of course it does. I'm so happy to know that because it's been bothering <laughs> me for a long time. Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. But... But it still is pretty scary. It still is a big fear. And so uh, I'm glad that you pointed that out and I get to be the person. It's sort of like, I mean, like when I first found out that during daylight savings time, we don't say like Eastern Standard Time anymore. It's Eastern Daylight Time. And someone once corrected me on that. And now I see it everywhere because people put, I'll, I'll speak with you PST and it's during daylight savings time. And so everyone's getting that wrong. And so we're all getting those public speaking thing wrong too. And I'm really happy to know the truth. <laughs> I know some people though that would rather, I was on a Reddit forum. People were asking when they can take propanol, how, how much time before their speech should they take it? Yeah. And I was giving advice like, I was, I didn't even know that people take drugs to get over speech anxiety. I didn't think it was a thing, but apparently it's that bad. So it, yeah. there is definitely a market as, as what you're saying, essentially. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot of fear around that as, as driven by a sense of imposter syndrome, feeling like one is a fraud. Right. And, and I do feel very good that there are resources, low entry resources like Toastmasters to help people get over that fear. Right. I feel that Toastmasters are doing the exact thing that you're describing about a persuasive speech or an informative speech and all of that. And I feel that there is a discrepancy there between what they do and what I've found to be most effective, but I see tremendous value in just having a friendly audience to get over the fear itself. Right, to, to get even an entry level exposure to public speaking. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So what time, what year do you start using, uh, use digital marketing to start building up clientele? That was back in 2017. Okay. Not too long ago, not too long ago. And it was, yeah, it was the sort of thing where it happened right away. It wasn't in digital marketing. There's often a lot of optimization and split testing and other marketing terms that people use in that world right. to they might have a very basic raw amount of traffic and then they have to work really hard to get it optimized to the point where they're getting a lot more traffic for the same investment of resources. And I never had to go through that because people were so driven to take next steps and book calls with me and all that because it was a combination of the fear we're talking about to get the clicks, but then the way I presented my content was compelling. And same thing that led to that two minute conversation with that other client being so effective in so little time. And, and it, all of these things wind up all coming down to a very simple technique that has wound up defining how my clients have gotten the results that they have. Okay, cool. Well, let's get into these techniques then. So I was going to start with the question, then you can take it however you want and just 
fill in the gap. In a nutshell, how do people get over the fear of public speaking and what techniques could they use to do that? In terms of the fear, I mean, there are certain techniques that anyone can use that I imagine you'll find in many places like regulating your breathing and doing a number of mindset type tips and things like that, that can really help you to settle your nerves in the moment on that day, right before you're announced or something like that. And I see there's tremendous value in those kinds of things, but the way that I actually do it is sort of like a side door approach in that what I've found contributes a great deal to anxiety around public speaking, as I just said a moment ago, is imposter syndrome. Okay. Feeling like a fraud on stage. Who am I to be speaking to all of these people, especially when it's a big room? And what I found is that when a person doesn't just have all of their knowledge, but they understand the secret sauce, the underlying recipe that makes them incredibly good at what they do, makes them an expert. When they have words, language for that secret sauce, they're able to completely own their value. And it doesn't mean that they're not noticing the fact they're on stage and that they won't get a little bit of nerves, but so much of that anxiety settles down because they don't just know what to say, they understand intrinsically why what they're saying has so much value to other people. Absolutely. And they no longer feel like a fraud because they get it now. They get, I've had clients who've been doing their thing for 20, 30 years. They've gotten on the New York Times bestseller list and they still didn't have a secret sauce. And they totally rallied around it. And then even if like one of my clients I'm thinking of was making 50K per speech and still didn't have the secret sauce. And then finally she understood her value. And then she just truly owned her value. And in her mind, she felt far more aligned with justifying such a hefty price tag for her speeches. Right. Right. I mean, it's so that seems to make a lot of sense to me. Like, so for, for people who generally like, I want to get over the fear of public speaking, I want to be a better public speaker. The, the, the first point of advice, it seems like you would tell them is what do you want to talk about? Because that will influence how the fear changes. And that once you figure out what you want to talk about and you're able to effectively communicate that in some manifestation, talking about other things that you're maybe not as knowledgeable doesn't get that much hard because you've gotten over the first fear. Yeah, I would, I would even take it a step further in getting even a little more precise about what you want to talk about. What I offer to you is to frame the question as what problem do I want to help people to solve? Right. And as soon as you start governing all of your content decisions from the perspective of the problem that your audience really and truly wants to solve, then every decision you make is going to be in service to them solving that problem. And all of a sudden, you're embracing a really crucial principle in all of this, that effective communication values the recipient over the sender. That's it. Make all of your decisions for the sake of the person who is receiving your stuff, which essentially is helping them to solve a problem they truly care about solving. You know, it's funny you say it like that. It's, I feel like I've always known that, but the way you just said it kind of triggered it to make a lot more sense. It's like, we always see like in, in, in workshops and things like 
when listen more than you speak, right? And the whole philosophical orientation behind mm-hmm. that is you need to know the problem before you solve the problem. So what you're saying is the purpose thing we talked about 10 minutes ago comes from trying to solve a problem in the world through what you're communicating, whether that's speaking or writing. Right. However it is, exactly, through speaking or writing, it all winds up being about there's this thing that's happening in the world right. that could be improved upon or grown or developed or somehow shifted in a positive way. And my expertise is going to be absolutely critical to that problem getting solved. Here I am. And I'm not an imposter at all because I know this this is going to help. Right. Um, I have a question about something that I've been thinking about. It is my belief that the technical components of public speaking, hand movements, uh, body movements, eye gestures, volume, clarity, rate, pitch, all that stuff, is simply not as important and is overemphasized in the speaking industry over the content of what you say. I see a lot of public speaking organizations say like, if you move your hands like this, or if you pace back and forth, you will be a better public speaker, which I think is true, but I think it only enhances a message. It is not a substitute for a message, which is why I think we get a lot of speakers who feel like they're charging a lot, but they're not getting any impact. Do you you believe that the content of what you say massively outweighs the way you say it? Absolutely. I would say even go even further, what other people have even taught me over the years or when it comes to getting gigs and that sort of thing is that the industry has shifted away from wanting speakers to instead wanting experts. Right. Right. And an expert is a person who might be a gifted speaker and might do all the technically proficient things you just mentioned, but fundamentally they're not there to speak and to be a good speaker. They're there to help people to solve a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's and what sells so, tickets for the conference, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you show up and one of the, one of the things I like to teach people about is the second most popular Ted talk is by Amy Cuddy on the power of body language. Right. And she uses vocalized pauses like ums, uhs, you knows, and does dozens of them in the first minute alone. It's a very unpolished speech. She brings a lot of nerves to it. And yet it's the second most popular TED Talk of all time. Her content has apparently even been questioned in its validity. <laughs> in like that the study wasn't true or something like that. And I don't I don't know about the veracity of her claims either way. What I do know is tens of millions of views is tens of millions of views. And she does not bring a tremendous amount of polish to her presentation. But people share that talk and they rewatch it because they believe her expertise is going to help them to solve a problem, right. which of course has to do with your presence and confidence as indicated and formed by your body language. Right. Right. She's helping to solve a problem. She's not just speaking. Yeah. That makes total sense to me. Um, Cause like, I, like I've seen speakers mess up and say that, you knows and the, the, and do the things you're not supposed to do. And, and to me, it's just like, it's, it's weird to criticize that at, at some level. Obviously, as a coach and a, and, a, and a consultant, you try to maximize efficiency, but you also really say, like, what are you saying at the end of the day? Because I don't think the audience is going to care that much <laughs> that you said a you know or that you took a sip of water during your speech, right? It's more about what did you impact them for. So, Neil, what problem are you trying to solve? Essentially... We have a lot of people out there seeking to influence others, seeking to persuade others. And what they wind up doing to persuade, in my opinion, 
leaves a great deal to be desired. There's a very popular sales technique. When people sell from the stage, for example, right. you might see someone has a five-step process. And in their speech, they might give you steps one and two to build trust and value. And then if you want the rest of the system, you need to buy right. to get three, four, and five. And there, and that's not sleazy to me, but I do feel it to some degree undermines the intrinsically persuasive nature of that kind of work. Contrast that with persuading somebody because you've given them the most powerful, essential, valuable aspect of your work. And then to go deeper, obviously, they're going to need more precise information around it. They're going to need the program or the book or whatever it is to go deeper. But because they have gotten the most valuable aspect of the concept, they not only trust, but they could, in theory, go out into the world and implement that concept without even needing more content from the speaker. Mm -hmm. And so the problem I solved to answer your question is to teach people how to be more effective at persuading while still having heart. How to maintain their brand equity without seeming like it has to decrease for asking for money. Right. right. How do you create that level of value in associate that value with your brand and at the same time make the investment in their work a positive thing as opposed to a slight or a, well, I guess if you're going to ring me out of all my money, I guess I'll go ahead with it. Right. It doesn't need to be a sleazy come on. It doesn't have to be even cutting people off from your system or whatever. It's like, here is tremendous value and there's even more value if you want to go deeper. But even if you don't, you should still have something to work with just in and of itself. It's, it's giving it out for free and then building trust and then hoping they're going to come back. And most of the time it does come back because as humans, as social creatures, we want to reciprocate the energy, right? It's not like we're just trying right. to take stuff for free. So once you give it to us for free, we almost kind of feel guilty that we have to give it back. Yeah. Yeah. It's the sort of thing where we ultimately want to be connected with others. We want to matter to others and all of that. And so often persuasion is about manipulating people. Right. right. It's about tricking them into something. And rather we can persuade not through, we can persuade not through manipulation, but rather empowerment. And that empowerment winds up being the fundamental problem that I'm helping to solve. Now, Neil, the problem you're trying to solve, uh, billions of dollars have been made uh, continuing that problem that you are on a path to solve. The problem being the ability to sleazily get people to give them their money without really providing any value or trying to manipulate in unethical ways or things of that nature. So do you feel as if there's kind of like a larger mission to what you're doing that is going to create purpose and meaning in your life, given you're trying to tackle a problem that a lot of people who are trying to influence to try to create that brand that you're talking about have so that they steer in the right path when they're building a brand versus go down the path that many, many other people have and have made money off of it, but really haven't created an impact off of it. I really appreciate the question, Amit. And right now on the day of this conversation that you and I are having, one of the most recent things in the news is around 
the movements that are taking place in Turkey and Syria with the Kurds and everything and the number of lives that have been at stake and the death and destruction that we're now facing. And while I don't want to make this conversation an overtly political one, I'm comfortable enough to say that thousands of people losing their lives unnecessarily is a bad thing. Pretty much. Yeah. And I I don't want for that, that for this world. And I do believe that this is not about partisan politics. This is just about who is currently in the white house. I feel like the kind of decisions that are being made are far more likely to lead to thousands of lost lives and that that's unnecessary. And that if those who would oppose a person who I do, I do believe our current president is a textbook demagogue in preying on the populace's fears to persuade them to vote for him. I would agree with that. Yep. And I liken that to the demagoguery that was pervasive throughout 1930s Germany and in other places as well. And I absolutely do not approve of demagoguery as a way to influence or to persuade. And so to come back to your original question, my mission is to steer us away from manipulating others using demagoguery, using other techniques like that, because quite simply, I don't want to live in a world where tens of thousands of Kurds lose their lives unnecessarily or anyone loses their lives unnecessarily or have small children taken away from their parents and put in boxes or whatever it is that that happens. I don't want to be a part of that world. I want us to influence others from a place of heart. And I want to solve that problem in any way I can, in any way I can contribute to that being the case. That's that's beautifully, beautifully said, because my question was sort of what is your personal mission in the context of like marketing, communication and speaking? And the way that you understood it was that there is a larger sociocultural problem in our society about persuasion, which is intrinsic in what we're talking really about in this conversation that is being negatively uh, deployed in a lot of different places right now. And that influences the business world as well, but it influences the larger world in general. So your mission seems to stem even in its micro sort of purpose that it is right now to tackle that larger sociocultural phenomenon that exists. Absolutely. We have so many regrettable examples of manipulation being the order of the day when it comes to persuading people. And of course, marketing falls under that purview. Marketing is very much a part of it and manipulating people into something that doesn't necessarily serve them because it serves the people doing the manipulation is also a truly problematic thing, in my opinion, to have happened. And it's important we're talking about this because uh, like, I've seen a lot of content around public speaking and people don't touch on the fact that what you and I do as like coaches and trainers is giving people the tools that they could use in a really negative way. So if mm-hmm. we are unethical or we have this sort of uh, inability to connect with the things that we're teaching and how those things that we're teaching can potentially lead to people going into the White House and doing those types of things, then we're just bad trainers. And forget trainers, we're just bad human beings. And the conversation around persuasion and communication needs to be intrinsic to the conversation of public speaking speaking, and how it relates mm-hmm. to bad persuasion and good persuasion, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Absolutely. There, there is so much to be gained by us rethinking how we communicate and the people who have the knowledge and expertise, but not necessarily the strategies to truly impact others would really benefit if they if they get better at this, then our world does fundamentally get better. Absolutely. It becomes a better place to live because the people with the expertise are actually carrying out that expertise in a meaningful and helpful way. Absolutely. Um, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I, I was going to say, I think this is a good time to end it. Do you have another 10 minutes? Do you want to hang on? Oh yeah, no, I, I'm good. Okay, cool. Um, next question I was going to ask, and this is probably the second to last, is social media and communication. Um, I think the internet is came up like 20 years ago, right? If we take a base of a pyramid, these platforms were built upon it in pretty much the last 10 years. And now all of us are at the top that have the democratization to be able to express and communicate ourselves in any way we want, built on this very new thing in our society. Um, mm -hmm. What impact does social media have on communication writ large and, and how you've seen? Has it made communication worse, harder? Do you think it stops people from being able to communicate in real life? What do you type of impact do you think it really has? Hmm. That's a really good question. What I've found is that social media, because it is such a flood of content and so many things are coming at us, both it used to be that disruptive advertising would happen in print or it would happen in TV or something like that. And we would watch the commercials, we would do whatever we did, and then we'd move on with our lives. But now with social media, the disruptive nature of advertising and whatnot winds up being competition for actual human connection. Yeah. Yep. And there, so, so advertising is doing a different thing than it used to in that regard. What it says to me is that those who want the impact I feel it has as a whole is that it's required laser focused precision and strategy around how to truly stand out, right. how to come above the noise. So I guess the simpler answer is there's a lot more noise with social media and those who are best positioned to help us make this world a better place have to be that much more deliberate and strategic about how they communicate. But at the same time with social media, there's a lot more opportunities to have that impact. It's just that it's going to take much sharper tools to do that. So for people who want to enter the speaking industry right now, it seems like not only do they have to figure out the problem they want to solve, then they have mm -hmm. to market themselves. And given we have these platforms to market ourselves, it would be, seemingly your advice that you have to hyper-focus your content strategy, what you communicate on those platforms in a way that is um, deliverable to your target audiences, which will actually allow you to start speaking about the things you want to solve once you get the attention that that would facilitate. Right, right. And it's also recognizing just like you might have two different audiences for your two different speeches and one is mid-level managers at a finance company and the other one is executive leadership at a seafood company. And those different, you might have the same basic problem you help people to solve, but you would then need to customize that a little bit to the different cultures and the top of mind issues. Similarly with social media, you have different cultures. People are there on that platform for different reasons. The 
marketing that you might do on those platforms is going to be disrupting different experiences for the users. And so it would take some level of nuance to reach them and convince them that you're worth following, that you're worth the interruption from whatever else they were doing on the platform before that. Right. And so with LinkedIn, as you mentioned at the beginning of our call, people on LinkedIn are, they're looking for leads. They're looking for business related things. And sometimes people are just killing time and seeing what else people are posting. But in the case of a marketing campaign on LinkedIn, you're going to be speaking to a different set of pain points than what you would on Facebook, perhaps, Absolutely. or Twitter or whatever it is. And what I will say is that Facebook by and large tends to be the most accessible not to crack. Doing it seems to be all encompassing, even for business to business opportunities, just because of the nature of that culture. Right. That makes sense. Um, last question I have. So your consulting practice right now, is this something that you're kind of just individually doing as yourself and you have a bunch of clients and do you see it potentially turning into a larger organization or what like five, 10 year mission do you have for it? Or do you want to just keep living life, doing your thing in sunny California and just like taking it day by day and helping other people as much as you can. I tell you one thing, Amit, if I did become a larger organization at some point, I'd have to do a significant rebranding because for years now, my website has been neilcanhelp.com. <laughs> um, and that for like Neil and some other people can help.com. <laughs> it, it, it has up until now always been about what's going on up here and then sharing that with people and all of that. I would be surprised if it's scaled to a larger organization simply because I just tend to be that secret weapon kind of guy who slips in and just helps somebody adjust their messaging, right. really transforms the flow of the, the talk or whatever content it is, and then leaves and just does his thing. So I'd be surprised if, ever, if it ever became something larger group-wise right. or organization-wise. But I'm also not closed off to possibilities if someone comes along. Right. And wants to write you a little bit of a fatter check. <laughs> and if someone comes along and wants to write you a little bit of a fatter check to, to scale up a little bit. Money does wind up being a powerful motivator in these things, as we all know, Amit. Um, I said that was my last question, but this is actually my, my last question. I ask this to all guests. Are you happy right now in life? Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually feeling really good about the way things are unfolding. And I'm particularly pleased that I'm integrating a lot of the personal growth work that I've been doing for some time in making it actionable and showing up as a much higher version of myself than I ever have. And that's and all so you can ask for. Yeah. Was that? That's all you can ask for out of, yeah. out of, out of your life, right? Right. Yeah, I agree. All right, everybody. Well, this was Neil Gordon. Neil, you can uh, toggle off some of your social links if you want anyone to know where they can find you, where they can uh, access any of your content. And thank you for being on the podcast. Great. Thanks very much, Amit. Neilcanhelp.com is my website. It's probably the simplest way to find me. But some version of Neil Can Help is going to show up on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and the like. And I absolutely adored our conversation today. All right. Awesome. That was Neil Gordon, everybody. We will see you on another episode of the Public Speakers Podcast.